I work as an economist at the moment, though I'm just about to go to King's College as a political economist, which I think is perfect for anyone who's interested in peace and conflict. Um, as an economist, one of the first things uh, you, you, you're trained and informed about is this idea of a peace dividend, that development is greatly aided by peace, and therefore that everyone should be very interested in building peace. And that makes it really confusing for me to see countries such as Somalia, which have sustained a civil war in excess of 20 years. That's a puzzle if the peace dividend is so big. So the question arises is, in whose name is this war being fought? And as Carolyn earlier on said, well, follow the money if you want to find out. It's really difficult to follow the money in a failed state. So what I and my co-authors, Katerina Christopoulou and Harris Makassaras, have done is we followed the light. We have followed light output data. So what you can see on this picture, and you'll see a lot more of this type of picture through the presentation, is the light output from various cities in Somalia. We're looking at what happened to these cities over time. So what you see here is a picture of Mogadishu in 1993, which looks like a city with a prosperous center, a large city with a prosperous center. We're looking at the same city again in 2009. You could cry looking at it because it's shrunk, because it's desperately poor. You can see the ghost city that other researchers have described on the ground. We can observe it from space. It saves me going there and getting myself kidnapped. There's very depressing literature out there in the development studies uh, group. It's called the literature on the war economy. And the war economy's literature says wars have got an economic logic of their own. And the aim is not necessarily to win the war, but to wage the war. Why? Because wars in themselves provide economic opportunities in the form of violent entrepreneurships, plunder, looting, kidnapping, smuggling, banditry, piracy. Quite interesting. They're armed groups which provide state-like functions, protection rackets, they're mafia-like structures, they stationary warlords, protect businesses within their territory, and then extort a lot of the profits from them. Even worse, there is a literature that says aid might not actually be particularly helpful in these contexts because aid is an asset in itself. Um, you make people hungry, you make people move. And then you manipulate where they're moving to and you move them to where it's easiest to exploit them. So the hypotheses, the testable hypotheses that come out of that war economy would be that there is a, peer, a peace dividend 
Um, the poor will benefit from stability. They don't mind who provides it as long as there is enough stability for them to plant something and eat it, to invest something and reap the gains. There is some positive economic activity that results from it. But we would expect the elites to be very resilient, or the incomes of the elites to be relatively resilient to conflict, and they might even benefit from conflict. So the idea is that the elites benefit from war, and therefore they continue it. Um, I think particularly, I, I don't think that elites in general like conflict in their own vicinity, but they might like conflict somewhere else because if you can't invest in Mogadishu, but you want to invest in Somalia, you might invest it in Somaliland. So it redirects investments towards more stable area. And then this terrible idea that refugees <coughs> are an asset to be exploited, and I'm looking for the aid infrastructure as a possible channel through which elites benefit from conflict because migration provides a stimulus to the local economies. Nobody's ever statistically tested these hypotheses. They come out of people's experience on the ground. They say, this is what we observe. But people tend to ignore that sort of study because they say, yes, that's, that's very local. There is no, no macro um, proof that this is happening. But obviously the first thing that fails in a failed state is the statistical office. We don't have data from failed states, we think. Except we do have data in the form of satellite images. And specifically, there's now a literature that establishes that if a country has got a big grey economy and very low capacity to collect good data, what you can use as a way of validating the data or complementing these terrestrially collected data is to look at nightlight emissions. Because electricity consumption at night is something that is indicative of wealth, of income. These data are open source. The National Oceanographic um, Administration provides these images. They're collected by weather satellites. Every night they go over the world. We discard all the data that uh, on full moon nights. We discard all the data from cloudy nights. And what we end up with are stable night lights, the places in the world in which generally um, there is emission of night lights. They are in pixels, about half a square kilometer each. They're coded from black to white. And we can see where the cities are. Um, the first thing that we see when we look at images from Somalia is that Somalia looks like Either it doesn't exist at all, um, or it looks like it's been submerged. There's hardly anything there. But if we look really hard and we ratchet up the contrast, we realize that there are some cities there. And we are looking 
at these city-shaped polygons in this analysis. This is exciting. Because the first thing that we can do with this is to write an economic history that was never written. We're restoring an economic history to these people. And I find that extremely interesting. So here's an example of one of these economic histories. Um, it's Brawl. Um, few things to note. Um, we observe the city, and sometimes these cities disappear altogether. It's just no night lights for an entire year. Nothing that turns up to be stable. Now, this is, represents a huge economic collapse. Instead of Barao, you see this thing turning up. Turns out to be a refugee camp. We're very able to map refugee camp. The UN seems to house people in white tents with lights in and around them, and they're very visible. So this, the city has disappeared, but the refugee camp is there. And then the refugee camp shrinks and gets sort of absorbed back into the city, and you see that the city um, is developing quite quite well for a time. And then you see this shocking image here going from 2008 to 2009. What you see there is the world food price crisis, the world food price index changing. And you see these mothers in Somalia making the choice between do we make, do the homework, do we put the lights on, or do we have supper? Yeah, this is a very, very sensitive indicator of economic activity, income, and wealth. So we don't have terrestrial data to complement the nighttime, nighttime light data, but in this context, it's an excellent proxy for disposable income because we don't have a nuclear power station that's just on and will generate regardless, so we don't have these um, ratchet effects. We don't have public provision. It is private provision, possible, most likely or mostly at the very household level with a sort of line for a light bulb going to, to neighboring compound or these sort of generators that are about container size that provide um, electricity to a few, uh, to, to a few blocks. As I said, it's highly sensitive to income and things like, like food prices. So we really see disposable income here. The literature that we have so far uses total nightlight output from specific areas and the changes over time. Um, I think we can do a bit better than that uh, here because... I think we can say something about income distribution within city from these nightlight data as well. So what's the idea here? It's a very medieval pattern of settlement. If we look at these cities, who lives where, the rich people generally live within the city center, next to the mosque, next to the market, etc. And then as you move out, the poor are literally <laughs> marginalized on the city. We don't see these high-end suburbs, low-density suburbs, that would confuse the pattern. They just aren't there um, in this period. So at the extensive margin, we can see 
people getting access to electricity as the cities grow out, but we also see them lose that electricity again as people move their generators elsewhere because there's no point generating any electricity here. We don't have any customers. But we also have the intensive margin. We can see what's happening in, 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 in the central pixels. Are the people in the center of the city emitting more light or less? And we think it's the rich people um, who live there. So we think we can say something about the relative um, changes in wealth among the poor and among the rich in this paper. So again, this is the picture of Mogadishu, which you're already familiar with. But what you see here is um, the capital or principal city of Somaliland, um, where you see the opposite pattern. Yeah? So you see that depopulation and economic collapse in, in southern Somalia. And in northern Somalia, Puntland in particular, and Somaliland, you see the opposite pattern of development, the st stable areas developing more people getting access to electricity. Um, Garraway wasn't even there in 1993. By 2009, it's a substantial city. So what have we got? We have got geocoded conflict event data. So all the uh, conflict events that are, are picked up in the international press with a geolocation, and uh, what we do is we correlate violence that is local in the sense of a 50-kilometer radius, and we look at the effect of war in Mogadishu on the total light output of these towns that we see, the size of the towns, changes in size of the towns, are indicator for the poor, and the maximum light emissions are indicator of um, what the rich are getting. Like I said, there isn't much to do here because there are only 14 cities and some of them are not even visible for the 14 years that we have um, because we have these extinction events which we disregard. Um, we also exclude Mogadishu because Mogadishu is a place that has very different patterns and because it has um, so, so, so much military presence with these military compounds lit, we really don't know what's going on there. Um, we control for a variety of exogenous shocks. We've got climate data. We know whether there's rainfall, uh, excessive rainfall or drought or floods, um, food prices, um, export, price, uh, um, export bans on Somali cattle, all sorts of things that we, can, that, that we could think of as, as having an exogenous effect on, on light output over time. I'm not going to bore you with the, with, with, with the results tables. Um, they're available. This paper is, is about to come out in the Journal of Peace Research, and if you want to see them, I've got them at the end of the presentation. I'm pleased as an economist that I can see a peace dividend, and it's significant. The poor benefit from peace. Yeah? Both local violence and remote violence reduce light output from the city margins. Yeah? So the poor do not benefit from all these additional people coming in from Mogadishu. They're probably just putting up their family members, their relatives, and they're sharing their rice, and they're switching the light off. 
So the poor would benefit from peace. The rich don't care about local violence. They're not significantly affected. I can't see anything. There is nothing that's robust. They don't, sometimes they probably benefit, and sometimes if they're getting robbed of something by a neighboring clan, they probably um, suffer, but on balance, there's nothing. Um, it seems to be posit positively correlated with remote violence. The main channel through which violence has a positive effect on the rest of the country, violence in Mogadishu, the war in Mogadishu, is through the World Food Programme presence. So if there is a high conflict year in Mogadishu and you're living in a city that does have the World Food Programme, a World Food Programme distribution centre associated with it, which then attracts refugees, that does seem to have... Um, statistically significant positive effects. Um, this is not in my data set because the uh, Dadaab refugee camp is in Kenya, but it does illustrate um, Dadaab being very much the, the Kenyan hinterland and not very much um, happening in it. And then it starts to attract these huge refugee flows from Somalia. As I said, once the UN comes in and builds its white tents, you can see the presence of these refugees. They do, they, they, they do turn up. You can see the extra camps that are built around um, Dada. But what you can also see is that this is a city that is growing massively with the business <laughs> of looking after these refugees with the aid that gets diverted from the refugees to the local population, the markets, because even though these people arrive with nothing, they do get supported by the diaspora, they do acquire um, means to buy stuff, and the markets spring up and the city grows. So. My conclusions from this, um, Somalia does have a war economy in the sense that the rich are insulated from the costs of conflict and they might gain from conflict elsewhere. So for Somaliland and for Puntland, there is a, is, a, is a direct benefit from the continuation of conflict in Mogadishu. They might not be directly responsible for it, but they don't have a good economic interest to stop it either. The poor would see a peace dividend, but as long as all political settlements are built on power sharing amongst elites, I wouldn't expect that to be particularly relevant to the peace building process. So my conclusion is that we're probably on a very positive path here because we are now looking at a more democratic political process. And that democratic political process in Somalia will enable those poor who would see the peace dividend to make their voices heard. And I think that will aid peace building in Somalia. Thank you. Thank you.